0: You have been uh, going with Pastor Chris through the uh, uh, Experiencing God series with Henry Blackfeet. Has anybody been keeping up with that reading? Mm -hmm. Has anybody read it before? Mm -hmm. There's a video series they did years ago. Did anybody see the video series? Yeah. I think it's one of the best teachings ever. And so I want to kind of uh, pick up on one of the themes that comes out of there in talking about God's covenant faithfulness, Um, the uh, God's covenant love and faithfulness. I don't know, and I've mentioned this before, but I I don't know about many of you that some of us grew up in different Christian traditions. And it's kind of interesting. I'm doing a lot of reading in church history. In fact, I brought the most recent book I'm reading right now uh, Witnesses for Christ by Edward Blackhouse and Charles Tyler, not Taylor, but Tyler. Um, first edition was written in 1887. And uh, I just I find it so fascinating reading biblical history and uh, and reading church history, and I, I and I really think that uh, to have a proper understanding of scripture, you have to have a, an understanding of not only the history of scripture, but also the history of the church in the last two thousand years. This is a lot of weird stuff. This is some weird stuff. Uh, And and so, there there is this... this, I think there's this false idea that somewhere around, at some time in history, that there was this golden age of God's people. That there was this... We romanticize, maybe it's the Reformation, we think that was the epitome of... Height of the evolution of the spiritual uh, nature of the church of God's people. However, if you read the history of the Reformation, it was really good stuff. <laughs> uh, and some people think, well, you know, it's the New Testament church, because what we really need to do is we need to get back to the New Testament church. And I always like to ask well, what which one? Would you like to be the Galatian church? Would you like to be, the, you know, the one that Paul wrote, by the way, he wrote to the Galatians and said, oh, you stupid Galatians. No. Maybe you'd like to be the Laodicean church. I mean, what New Testament church would you want to be? Do you want to be the Corinthian church that Paul writes an letter to because they can't take of the sin problems in the midst of the congregation? of Asia. What New Testament church you want to be? The fact of the matter is, is when you read the Old Testament history, and you see the, and I, I teach a men's Bible study on Thursday morning, we just started up again, and we're in the book of Judges here, where you're reading the, the the history of Israel, and you're, you know, you you, you, you could come away either really cynical or hopeless. Because you read their history, and you, you're left like slapping yourself outside the forehead, going, how in the world can they not get it. How in the world, after all those miracles and everything that God did for them, how is it that they could go wayward? The fact of the matter is, is it doesn't do you any good if you're able to read those scriptures or those stories of that history with an understanding that that is also a reflection of us. That's our nature. That's us in action. Uh, we're really no different than they are. So, uh, I just happened the other night to, to run across this in this book, and I thought it would be really good uh, to refer back to this. And this is going to be a little bit, but can you bear with me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a piece of history here, a story. And... Uh, let me see, this is, uh, this is the time of Basel, so this is like the 300s. This is just a couple hundred years. So think like, you know, the, the American Revolution was about 250 years ago, right? About this far after Jesus has left the earth, so about, that, about the same amount of time removed from our, uh, the forefathers of our great nation. So now, this is where this is the period of time of church history. By this time, indeed, the distinction between the unbelievers, the pagans, and Christians had become nominal Mm -hmm. rather than real. The vile manners of the heathen were still maintained by those who called themselves Christians. Children were by needy parents exposed to be perished. Boys were sold to slaves from their father's debts. Christian parents betook themselves to magicians when their children were sick and expected a cure to be wrought by hanging a talisman about their necks. And the conversation of the marketplaces was filthy. The theater was frequented alike by Christians and heathens, and was, as in the days of Tertullian, the very hotbed of vice. Chrysostom calls it the seat of pestilence, the gymnasium of incontinence, the school of luxury, Satan being its author and architect. And after many unheeded warnings, declares that he will no longer admit playgoers to the Lord's Supper, but he grew up in the days when it was like sending over the movies. <laughs> By the force of custom, sites were tolerated there which would have been uh, endured nowhere else. Even the celebration of the Eucharist and other rites of the church were, were profanely represented. The circus, not like the circus that we think of the Roman circus with the chariots and all that, right? The circus evoked the indignation of Chrysostom even more than the theater. Chrysostom was one of the early church fathers just before this period of time, about 100 years before the start. And he said, the indomitable passion of the chariot races, the silly eagerness displayed about them by the inhabitants of Rome and Constantinople and Antioch. Are among the most remarkable symptoms of the depraved state of society under the late Roman Empire. The whole populace was divided into factions. Now, this is self-aware. Tell me if this wasn't self-aware. The whole populace was divided into factions, distinguished by the different colors adopted by their teams, charioteers, of which green and blue were the chief favorites. Of. So bad. <laughs> the animosity, the sanguinary tumults, the superstitions, the folly, the violence of every kind which were mixed up with these popular amusements well deserved the unsparing severity with which they were uh, lashed by the great preacher Chrysostom. You applaud my words and then hurry it off to the surface. And sitting side by side with the Jew or the pagan, clap your hands with frenzied, frenzied eagerness at the efforts of the charioteers. You plead business and poverty and want of health, lameness as excuses for absence from the church. But these hindrances never prevent your attendance at the like hippodrome a circus. That's out there. Has anything changed? Salvian, a a presbyter of Marseille, and a writer of uncommon elegance, has left us a forcible description of the corrupt state of the church in the 5th century. The binding language in which he declaims is the very counterpart of that which Cyprian speaks of the heathen world. What, he asks... What but fraud and perjury is the course of life of the merchants? What but iniquity, that of those attached to the halls and the courts? What but false accusations, that of our officials? What but of raping by the military? You will say, surely the nobility, they're free from this not so, for who is there, whether among the noble or among the rich? And it's one of the miseries of this time that none is accounted so noble as equalism masks such great wealth. What does that sound like? Who is there that shudders at crime? I am wrong. Many shudder crimes. They are shocked at the vices of others. while they themselves practice the same. They execrate openly what they perpetuate perpetuate secretly themselves. A very few accepted what else is almost every assembly Christian but a sink of vices. Ouch! A very few accepted what else is almost every assembly of Christians but a sink of vices? You will more easily find the man who is guilty of all crimes than him who is guilty of none. But it is it the laity only, you will say, who is, who is sinning at this rate? Surely not the clergy. Alas, under color of religion, men who after a course of profligacy inscribe themselves with a saintly title, And have changed their profession only, not their lifestyle. They have put off the garment only, not the mind of their former condition. These men well know what I am saying is true. Their own consciences bear witness to every word. The entire mass of the priests is so sunk into this depravity that it has come to be regarded as a species of sanctity for one to be a little less vicious than the rest. Inasmuch as scarcely any corner is not blotted with the stain of mortal sin, what room have we to flatter ourselves with our name, Christians? It will to many sound insufferable if I should affirm that we are inferior to the barbarians. Reading church history can be depressing. (laughs) That question, though. Yeah. Is that everybody or just Corinth? That was the, he was writing the whole empire. They used to say what happens in Corinth. He stays Staves in Corinth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, did I read that to depress you all? church. <laughs> uh, so, here's the thing I want you to go to Judges chapter 2. You to, I want us to look at where we are today and all the mess that we're in because it's not a pretty picture. And you know, it's interesting that the, the uh, one of the news articles just put, put out that the uh, the identification of people who claim none as religion has plateaued in the United States. It's now, it's plateaued at about 31 or 32%. About a third of the population of the United States claim none as a religious affiliation. And can you hardly blame it? I mean, the church as a whole has not held itself up as to be a uh, place of, of virtue, particularly as stuff has rolled out the last couple of years concerning some of the prominent evangelical leaders and pastors of some of the biggest churches in the United States. The question is when you think about that and the state of the church and where we're at are we any worse off than what Basel and Chrysostom and uh, the other kind of what what they were describing in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century? Or How about Judges, chapter two? The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you the land, which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I said, I will not drive them out before you, but you shall but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and the wept. And then they called on the name they called the name of that place Hoking. They sacrificed there to the Lord. And, Joshua had, and when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went out, each to his own inheritance, to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel when he brought him out of Egypt. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Some of you are just getting started, way. <laughs> you've got a ways to go to and they buried him within the border of his inheritance of Timnath Eretz in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the ostrichs. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The children, when you read the history of the, the children of Israel, the story's not going to get any better as you move through the book of Judges. Now, there will be these ebbs and flows, this, these renewals or revivals and revivals, and then within a generation, they're back to their old ways. You, you see the, the inclination of the sin, sinful, sinward nature of humankind fully on display. God's people, his covenant people. The interesting thing is, is why I bring this up is uh, what you see also displayed in the story is not just the, the waywardness of God's people. I mean, if that's what you focus on, you would throw up your hands in despair or you'd become a nihilist. What's the point? But see, if that's all you read in the story, you miss the bigger part of the story. Because this is not just a story about the children of Israel and how bad they were and how much of a bunch of knuckleheads they were and how they couldn't get it right. The bigger part of the story is the story of the nature and character of God at work amongst the wayward people who are constantly going astray. See, the fact of the matter is, is God had made a promise. Not to just this generation, but he had made a promise, a covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness was not dependent upon the performance of these people because he had made a covenant. A covenant that was based on his own name and his own nature and his own character. And while his chosen people, his covenant people, could be could become unfaithful and maybe wayward and even rebellious, he himself and his nature and character could not do any other than but to remain faithful to his covenant promise. And he was going to go to any lengths to make sure his covenant was fulfilled, that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which, by the way, is a covenant that finds its seed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of Adam and Eve, when God makes a promise then of raising up a deliverer. Which we find later on, a few thousand years later, fulfilled in the messianic fulfillment of Jesus, when Jesus arrives here on earth. Through his life and his death and his resurrection and his glorification, seals the covenant that God's made with us who are now included in the covenant. (coughs) I want you to notice a couple things here. When you go up to chapter 2, there's this repetition of this command that God had told the Israelites. And you can easily find that if you go back into Deuteronomy and you go back into. Uh, 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 Joshua, back in Deuteronomy, if you remember, back in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, we don't have time to spend a lot of time there, but you got the the mount of blessing and cursing. Do you remember that, right? Before they're ready to go into the the land, and they're going to take over the land, and they've just conquered Jericho and I, and, and they have this Mount of uh, garrison and Mount Ebal, and they pronounce blessings and cursings, and and there. God says to them, don't make covenants with these people. Don't intermarry with them because they will lead you astray. They'll lead you down the wrong path. And if you remain faithful to my covenant, these are all the blessings that you're going to enjoy. But if you don't remain faithful to my covenant, these are all the cursings that will come upon you. This will be the result of your behavior. And then, and then in Joshua twenty, uh, Joshua uh, 23, the, the same thing is repeated. Joshua tells the, the people, therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from him to the right or to the left, the left and lest you go among these nations These who remain among you you shall not make mention of the name of their gods or cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them or bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven them out before you. For it's the Lord who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves if you love the Lord your God only. do not, if you do not heed, if you do not cling, then the Lord your God will no longer drive them out. And these nations will be snares and traps to you, scourges in your sides, thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good way. Covenant promises. Covenant blessings. But also covenant warnings. There are natural consequences. I used to tell my like, children growing up, you can choose your actions, but you don't get to choose your consequences. You don't, don't get to choose the consequences. Right? God has put into place certain spiritual laws, just like the law of gravity, there are, there are certain spiritual laws, the law of sowing and reaping. That are just natural consequences of the lives that we live out here. What we see is the children of Israel bearing the consequences of their actions. As someone wisely said, you can't sow your wild oats and pray for harvest failure. I want you to notice that there's this indication here that the generation of Joshua and all of the people that were with him uh, had been faithful and obedient to the Lord. And that's, a, that's a kind of true, but when you read that, it's not all the way true. But th- there's that set in, con- in contrast against this generation that follows them. Did you catch that? Now in verse 10, there's another generation arose after who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So now keep in mind, Remember, Joshua goes all the way back to when? Egypt. Egypt. Joshua had been there when they came out of Egypt. Joshua had been there during the plagues. Joshua had been there when they crossed the Red Sea. Joshua had been there and survived the 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua had been there when they conquered the Transjordan tribes before they crossed the Jordan River to take uh, Jericho on he and all that generation had experienced all those. Incre- Can you imagine the highs and the lows? Of everything from crossing the Red Sea to the bitter waters to the golden calf to the manna from heaven to the quail that made them sick. I mean, they had experienced it all. They knew the story. Well, how is it that the generation that comes after them then seems to be completely ignorant of that? How did that happen? Well, it's kind of interesting here. We don't catch it in the English very well. In, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more clear. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. That. The idea there of who did not know the Lord was not just simply an absence of knowledge or absence of experience, but there was this, there's this idea of belligerently ignored. And you don't pick that up in the English here. The meaning of did not know is that the people deliberately or refused to acknowledge God's authority. It's not not simply that they were ignorant and that the stories hadn't got passed down to them. It's that they were a generation who knew the stories. They knew the history. But they blew it off. There's something about deliberate ignorance. Refusing to heed and to hear. That leads this generation. And again, instead of shaking our heads and clucking our tongues and thinking, oh my gosh, what a bunch of screwed up people, let's read the scriptures as if it's a mirror. Could it be that we are that generation? The spiritual fathers who've been before us, the spiritual mothers who've been before us, the mighty miracles that they experienced, the things that they saw God do in their lives. And yet, yeah, that was then, this is now. The consequence of that is right there in verse 11. There's this other generation that rose up and then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice the action words here. I want you to notice this. This is not just a, oh, they kind of slid down this way. These are action words. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They followed other gods. They bowed down to other gods. They provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and they served Baals. Does that sound like a, a passive observer? Somebody who has active intent. No. The fact of the matter is, is that every generation has their own responsibility. You know the old saying that, that there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of heaven. Everybody has to be born again themselves. And no wonder then it says in verse 14 that the angel of the Lord was hot against Israel. He'd warned them. And all the things that he'd done for them uh, in delivering them. And so here it's interesting that it just simply says that the Lord delivered them into the hands of the plunders who despoiled them. Catch the double meaning there. The plunders who despoiled them. It wasn't... By accident. Now let me, you know, I don't mean to take today's newspaper and try to throw it on top of the Bible and say, But could it be? Could it possibly be that all that we're experiencing today in the world might be an indication that God is trying to get our attention? If there was to be an old testament prophet who suddenly arose on the scene and, and he, he looked at just he just looked at the world as it's unfolding and seeing the events of the world, what would he think when he saw a world that was suffering from pestilence? rioting in the streets, natural disasters that were wreaking havoc, nations at war with one another where even the weakest of the nations seem to be victorious. Economic upheaval. What do you think? Is it possible that there could be an indication? Maybe it's we're not any better off that we're being plundered by the those who would despoil us. Possibly, I'm just thinking possibly that just like the children of Israel, that God's salvation acts through history, that his redemptive acts through history really maybe hasn't changed all that much, that he sees in the ebb and flow of the history of Israel and the ebb and flow of church history over the last 2,000 years, and there's been these times where the churches. Has become has risen to s- s- stellar heights and sending out missionaries and evangelists all over the world, and the kingdom of God is expanding to full force, and then there's a class of cultures and compromises are made, and another generation raises uh, is raised up that doesn't know any of that and refuses to acknowledge it. And God allows the sowing and the reaping to take place. Again, I'm not trying to print or impress upon scripture of today's newspapers, but I'm just wondering could it be that God's salvation acts are not all that much changed and maybe he's trying to get the attention of his people. He delivered them into the hands of the plunders who despoiled them, or he delivered them into the plunders who plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemy so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them. It's interesting when you continue on, we're not going to go there, but later on in chapter 2, God says, because this nation has transgressed, it's interesting there that there is that language of this nation, the language of the nation is is a language that is used for Gentiles, not for covenant people. He doesn't recognize his people anymore. So wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. Just like the Lord said, and just like the Lord promised them, and they were greatly distressed. Can we all agree that maybe we live in greatly distressed times? Yes. Is it possible that we can identify maybe the age that we're in as one that's greatly distressed or maybe a little bit distressed? Is it possible that we can look at our world and see the inequities, the injustices, the threats, the insecurities, the fears, the anxieties? Could we look across the the landscape of just our nation, let's forget the rest of the world, not just the landscape of our nation, and say to ourselves, you know, it seems like our nation is distressed. Anybody else registered with that besides me? Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is where you can throw up your hands in despair and say, well, you know, it's a lost cause. Or you abandon your faith and become a nihilist. (laughs) If there's no hope, then what's the point of going on? But again, if you read Old Testament stories, not just as human experience, but also as God's action in human history, remember history is his story, and how is God involved in a nation who seems to be turning their back on him? Well, I don't have time this morning to continue on in Israel's history. The ebb and flow and the times where God continues to intervene all the way up to the time of Jesus. I can't tell you about the story of, of the prophet Hosea who married a prostitute and continued to be wayward and continued to leave family and home, running after other men. And God kept telling Hosea, you're not to divorce her, you're going to go after her. Because that's how I am with the We don't have time for that. All we have time is verse 16. Some translations, a lot of translations is it simply says then. Pretty anti Then God. Raised up judges. churches. I like the King James or the New King James version because it really picks up the intent of the Hebrew. It's a contrast. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, God raised the judges. See, that's a powerful message. Right there. God's not abandoned his people. He's not left them to their own causes, their own devices. Even when he later on, a few hundred years later, well, quite a few hundred years later, sends them into captivity into a foreign land his whole purpose of that is that he might restore them even in these times his whole purpose for releasing them into the consequences of their own rebellion is so that his people might be restored nevertheless god sent judges and see that's the salvation story The The human story is the human uh, is the story of one that's constantly being messed up and screwed up. God's story is the story of nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. You see, what should give us hope is God's story is not that. As much as you might despair about the, the place of the world or the stage of where the, the America is, you see, in God's story, there's I believe there's still a nevertheless. And I, I believe that for people's personal lives. Some of you have children or grandchildren that have wandered away from God. And as far as they wander, there's a nevertheless for them because God won't stop pursuing them. He won't. Because God's covenant faithfulness is not based upon their performance any more than it's based upon your performance. His covenant faithfulness His faithfulness and His love is based upon a covenant promise that He made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and that He sealed in the blood of His Son Jesus Christ he will remain faithful to his covenant. He will love the people of his covenant because the foundation of his covenant was never based upon the performance of his people, but upon his nature and his character and the promises that he made in that covenant. And that's why we can have hope. That's why we can pray with confidence. Because we know that no longer, no matter how far our loved ones, our friends and family may roam, God has made a covenant. No matter how far our nation might seem to decline into waywardness, God has made a covenant. Nevertheless, he will raise up a judge. He will raise up people to be prophetic voices in our generation. He will raise up preachers. He will raise up pastors. He will raise up evangelists. He will raise up teachers. who will be voices in the generation. And if you read your Bible, if you read church history, you'll see that story played over and over and over again. And that's why we have hope. Nevertheless, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful and thankful that you remain faithful. Even in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, that God, you cannot deny yourself that your, your promises are yes and amen. So Lord, we choose to believe that you are for us, that you are not against us. That you are for our children, our grandchildren, our friends and our family who've wandered away. That you're for our nation, that you will not abandon, you will not leave us or forsake us. Psalmist said, "If I go to the depths of hell, you're there. If I ascend to the highest of heights in heaven, you are there. Where can I go?" So, Lord, we come to you, and we plead on our behalf that God, you would see us, you would hear us, you would work in our lives. We plead on behalf of our friends and our family and our children, our grandchildren, that God, by Your Spirit, you would work in and among them. Nevertheless, as far as they are from you, nevertheless, you would raise up people in their lives as people who would speak to them, witness to them. We pray that for our nation, God. No matter how far we seem to have wandered from the foundational truths of your scripture, the spiritual realities in which we were established as a nation, Nevertheless God, you would continue to raise up people in our generation, the generation after us, that comes after us. be spokespeople for you. Judges and prophets and apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers to do the work of your ministry. Turn our hearts back to you, God. Just like you did as we read in the stories of Israel in the Old Testament just as like we read in the history of your church we give you thanks as we hope in all of us in Jesus' name